Welcome to the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders get clarity on how to align sales and marketing, build a high-performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth for their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Davis, author of award-winning book, Create Togetherness, and founder of Rev Engine. Let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, it is Jeff Davis with another episode of the Rev Engine podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders align sales and marketing, transform the revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth. I'm excited to talk to our guest today, Dr. Howard Dover. He has many titles, but does a lot of research and a lot of work around sales innovation, sales transformation, which I think is more important than ever. I don't want to steal his thunder, but I'll give you a few things about him and what he does. He is currently the Director of Center for Professional Sales at UT Dallas. So we have any UT folks? Go cook them horns, right? I think I said that right. I'm not, obviously, I'm not a UT, <laughs> not a UT grad, but I know that. Clinical professor of marketing there, marketing there as well. And he has also founded the Institute for Sales Knowledge and Innovation, uh, which was sparked by his book, which I'm really excited to kind of dive into in our conversation. So Dr. Dover, I don't want to steal your thunder, as I said before. So I want to step back give you some time to tell folks a little bit about your history, and then we will jump into the conversation. Take it away. Wonderful. Well, I've, I've always kind of been a sales guy. I mean, I was raised by uh, a good mom and dad that my dad ran away from home, believe it or not, during the Great Depression. And wow. so he was a chef for the military back in World War II. So he's a generation removed from me because he was 50 when I was born. And then he was a janitor when I was really in my formative years. So we kind of struggled, you know? And so I learned really early on that if I wanted to get something as a kid, I had to work for it. And selling, believe it or not, selling newspapers was some guy would pull up in the van in front of the house. And I'm I'm blown away that my parents would let me do this now that I think about it. You know, in, in today's world, this dude would drive up in the van like three nights a week, I'd jump in the van and drive somewhere in Marin County, California and go knock doors as a 10, 11 or 12 year old kid selling newspapers every night. And I'd make, you know, enough money to buy a backpack to go camping with scouts and, you know, and get a bike. And so, you know, I I just learned early on that if I put forth effort, I would be able to get what I wanted and needed as a kid. And yeah. so that's kind of the early beginning, not, not that you wanted that early, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, sales is a necessity. And, and um, sometimes I, I think that's where the field starts, right? Is it someone realizes, wait a minute, if I put forth for effort at, yeah. at an individual level, I can buy dreams. And I just lucked out that that happened when I was a kid. And so anyway. Then fast forward, got an education and decided to get a PhD, which is another story for another day, but got a PhD. And you ready for this? Quantitative yes. methodologies. And that's why I'm in sales. Of course, because that I'm all makes actually sense. actually a mathematical quant modeler. <laughs> and that's why I'm in sales, right? It makes complete sense. Yeah. Well, I have the story with everybody all the time. I started in engineering and, uh, you know, yeah, went to sales okay. for my first job out of college. So it, it all right. makes sense. All right. we're, we're, that's why we get along. See? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> probably I, so. <laughs> so prior to that, I was actually designing computer systems for the state of Oregon. And even before that, even in my sales company, 
I read a book by Arthur Hughes back in the day called Strategic Database Marketing when I owned my own company. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, maybe I should be building a database around the sales performance of my, my people back then. And I started to recognize trend lines once I could look at the data. So I ended up build, you know, learning, teaching myself how to code after college and uh, had an economics degree from BYU that I went into sales. So that's kind of the technology piece. I started realizing tech could influence efficiency and effectiveness, Learned, taught myself how to code, started looking at intelligence around the sales performance data, started realigning the way we scheduled people, started getting 20, 30, 40% bumps in performance with the same effort, right? Same yeah. people, but using the data to redeploy people. And then started, you know, left that, built computer systems for the state of Oregon at an, at an enterprise scale, and then said, gee, I want to go back into business and went and got my PhD. So I'm a, I'm a very non-traditional PhD. I'm a technologist. I'm a mathematically mm-hmm. trained quant. I could, I, I had to take a class in the PhD program on how to get a rocket into space, the mathematics of jet propulsion, um, because apparently you can use okay. that for advertising. To get optimal mm-hmm. advertising pulsing, you actually use optimal control theory. So Who knew? anyway, that's, that's kind of the weird, bizarre, just for fun background. Um, and then, of course, uh, I've, I founded the Center for Professional Sales 10 years ago, and I was brought in to build the center. I was brought in to teach sales at a Research One quant marketing shop um, yeah. because they knew they weren't teaching sales. And they found me, uh, they produced me. That's where I got my PhD is at UT Dallas. And after five years of being in a University of Maryland system school back east, they asked me to come back and form the Center for Professional Sales, which happened 10 years ago, basically this year. And, um, And so that's, we've been working on it ever since. And we take a unique approach to it because we are quant heavy economy. Not behavioral, we're economists okay. by training, mathematical and economic theory shops. So we, we, t- we lean into who we are in the way we teach. And our students are very, very, they're quant. They're, they're, they're very intense, analytical, very diverse, very hardworking students who choose us over any other institution and so we just get to work with really smart kids and we teach them sales. And it's been awesome. I love it. Well, first of all, congrats on the, the decade of having the Institute be open, uh, which is a huge deal because I think, you know, the trend has shown that there's more and more professional selling programs uh, popping up all over the country because it's, yes. the profession is becoming more complex than it has before uh, on the B2B side of things. So uh, congrats to you on that one. Also, I would say I love having people quote unquote, weird or non-traditional background people like yourself because uh, on the show, because I think it really informs the perspective and unique point of view you have to have as a, a revenue leader today, because you really have got to understand multiple disciplines to do this right. You've got to understand sales, marketing, customer success, product, all that stuff to really tie all this stuff together and be able to see across all the functions and really break down silos. So 
the fact that you are a clinical professor, but also teaching sales, I was like, I need to have Dr. Dover on the show. Like, this is not a question. And so what really sparked to have this conversation is that we were catching up at Sales Enablement uh, Soiree recently, and uh, just had a really great conversation about sales and marketing for those that don't uh, kind of have the context of our relationship. And we met years ago, and I followed your work for, for, for many, many years. Uh, but that conversation was just so enlightening for me, obviously, and we'll get into some of the specifics of the book. But I just loved your point of view and your way of thinking about the sales and alignment issue or sales and marketing misalignment issue uh, because it continues to plague people. So with all that said, let's jump into it. So one of the things that I, that I have read recently was you know, HubSpot estimated that about 40% of sales, uh, com- I'm sorry, 40% of companies have failed to meet their sales goals. And I believe that was in 2021. And we know it continues into to 2022. I wanted to get a, a sense from you, what are the kind of main issues or main challenges that's causing this to still be an issue for B2B companies out there? Just missing quota, missing targets, uh, et cetera. Well, I think there's a couple of different issues that we could dive into. But let's start with the fact is how did they create the goal in the first place? Yeah. Let's be honest. I mean, I love Scott Lease. You know, he talks about how goals are set and sometimes that number comes out of nowhere. And so I, I think the first thing you have to critically ask is, where did that number come from? Did it come from the, your VCs, right? That, hey, that's mm-hmm. what we need. Um, or did it come from a, a real evaluation of the market potential and your current data and an understanding of, the, of what we would call the diffusion curve, right? Or are we just picking it out of the sky? So that's, yeah. that's number one. Let's be honest that sometimes, not, not sometimes, I'm going to go with a lot of time that number is created out of the sky instead of out of intelligence. Yeah. So, uh, so that, that's item number one. Item number two is I'm assuming that if we're going to pick a number that is going to cause growth, we're going to assume that outbound is going to generate that revenue. Most companies are, are not going to say, hey, we have a digital demand engine that's just a machine, and therefore we're going to increase the spend, and we know that we're going to hit the number. Well, you know, there's companies that do that are highly successful. They do it, and they know, and, and then they have the ROI, and they have the, the demand gen funnel. They know they can make it happen. Mm-hmm. So usually we're going to run into a group that's, that's working on outbound. And so, the, you know, if we're working on outbound, we're working with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknowns. And what we know, and, and this is what I cover a little bit in the book, is that if you track the last three to five years outbound strategy in the aggregate, so you take a look at the whole world of outbound, yep. you'll realize that there has been a, a 13x or 1200% increase in the number of SDRs going outbound. Okay. And we just deployed technology. If you look back five years ago, sales engagement platforms were nascent. Now they're now now they're kind of you know table stakes for most companies. Mm-hmm. So the automation of the field has reached a level in which I'm not saying sales engagement platforms were designed to automate everything, but we're getting bot like in our outbound where we're getting lazy because sales automation or sales engagement platforms 
are easily automated in the sequence process. So we start looking like bots, if not even deploying bots. So it kind of doesn't make sense that we've deployed technology that makes the job easier. At the same time, we increase the number of people by 13 times doing the job. And now all of a sudden, we're all going to go outbound together. Well, the buyer is kind of just choosing to ignore us. The noise factor on the buyer side of the fence is, I just think you're irrelevant and I know you're pitching me and I'm just not going to talk to you. So the buyer is creating defensive mechanisms in the outbound space. Mm-hmm. And a lot of research is coming out basically saying that I don't find the seller very relevant. So it's interesting because we've automated this sales process. We've run a ton of SCRs at this. Have we actually become better, more effective, more efficient at selling? No. You already you just gave me the data point. The data points have continually been that we are that the percentage of our team who's achieving quotas has been sliding down for years. For years. Now, now, now you can say, well, the quotas keep going up. I mean, there could be a lot of different components to that equation. But you know, at, at what point did we say? I love some of the work being done by RepView right now where everybody's laundry gets put out. Isn't that awesome? We get to know, you know, the percentage of quota attainment for every company. You know, what what a great job they're doing. I might have to call them up and have them on the show. Yes, I think so. Because what he's doing is he's really putting the laundry out there. And it's great stuff to say, okay, so you're sitting at 70% quota attainment. Good for you. That's Let's go figure out what that management's doing, right? Yeah. Versus, you know, the average is, is, is 50 or, or sub 50 and has been for quite some time. At what point in the world did we decide that that's a great thing, right? That we're going to yeah. set a quota. And I'd love to have debates with anybody about this idea of what kind of culture are we saying that we're okay with 50% of our team sucking? And may, really, at some point, you got to be saying, Maybe we shouldn't have 50% of the team, so we're going to have high churn versus a culture that says, oh, we need 70 to 80% of the quota attained. In fact, what I'm hoping for is that the better thing to be tracking is how, what percentage of people are way above the quota, right? okay. what percentage of the people are breaking out and, and this top performers. We at the sales center, we actually go live selling every semester. I got the hardest job in the world, uh, Jeff, because once I train my people, they all leave and I got to do it all over. All over again. All over again. (laughs) So after after three to four months of really working to generate pipeline in one class, and then the other one, we actually try to generate and close pipeline in another class, right as I get them at the level where they're, they're just hitting it, they leave me. And I got to start all over again. I never get to keep them. And so, but, you know, we get an interesting eye into what prospecting feels like on on a very every six month basis. And so it's just an interesting opportunity. We've been doing live selling since the day we opened the shop. I mean, we the University of Houston is a phenomenal program. And we mirrored a lot of what we did based off them. Now, we, we didn't have the history, we didn't have the funding, and we, we also had different students. And so my hat always goes off to the University of Houston because they've been live selling since day one, 
And when, when I met Eli Jones years ago, and I went down and visited with Mike Ahern when I started my program, we said, you know, we're going to model this live selling component where every class has a quota. And so we're going to allow the students to experience that performance reality. And you know what? I know the program is off when a majority of my students can't close or hit quota. Now, yeah. now we went through the pandemic, Jeff, selling. That was the oh, hardest really? thing. When the economy shut down, I went into my class and I said, so we can go two ways on this. I said, I can give you a break on the quota and we can just, you know, we, we, we can make a modification. Or you guys stick to it. It's going to be rough. And let's see what we can do. Let's learn together because whatever's going to happen in the pandemic, you're going to graduate and you're going to have to sell into whatever's happening. And they yeah. all said, let's do it. Let's go. Let's take this. That was one of my favorite classes because those kids started collaborating in different ways, started cross-pollinating what was happening, what was working. I mean, the closes just disappeared to almost nothing because in the pandemic, nobody knew what was going to happen. No, They kept on having meetings. They kept on booking meetings. They kept on figuring out how to start in the early phases of the pandemic, how to transition over into Zoom calls, phone calls. and. It was a gritty group of students. It was awesome. By the way, they all got placed. When they went out into the field, they were like killing it. I, well, yeah, because I mean, they basically had kind of that whole kind of sandbox to practice on how, oh, to, yeah. how to sell through the pandemic. Yeah. And I like to tell my students at the end of the day, you know, we're relatively benign on consequences. I mean, the worst thing that's going to happen, you're going to get a bad grade. You know, nobody's going to die. And you're no. not going to lose millions of dollars with what we're doing. Now, mm -hmm. you, may, you may get a bad grade on an assignment. And if you continue to do the same bad thing in my class, you may actually get a bad grade. But, hey, come on. In the grand scheme of things, that isn't killing your dreams like getting fired from a, from a, a six-figure job, right? Right. Right. You sparked a question in me. So it was a while back, I uh, wrote an article called Digital for Selling for Selling Power. And the process was like doing the research and, and having conversations with sales leaders. One of the topics came up about coaching a new sort of selling paradigm where sellers have to sell across channels. So, you know, like back in the day, I'm totally aging myself. When I carried a bag, you know, it was mostly face to face, right? Like I wasn't texting, I wasn't sending emails. I wasn't doing Zoom chats. I wasn't, all that stuff was, you know, not really the primary means of connecting with customers. But now more so than anything, what I argue in the article is that to be successful as a B2B seller, you've got to sell and have a, a cohesive conversation across channels because you're reaching out to the same prospects, you know, LinkedIn, social, phone, email, face-to-face, -face, whatever. So have you seen there be a need to increase coaching around selling across devices or how are sales leaders are, uh, approaching this? Because I feel like it can be a huge barrier for sellers, even if they're good, to really be effective and capture the attention and keep the attention of today's buyer. Well, I think what I like to teach is that we need to realize that now that we have multiple channels, I think your buyer has a preference. Okay. Right. And so like, for example, there's a guy that I know that's one of our clients at the center 
and has been for the whole decade, he's a lunch, right? <laughs> it's no matter what. Now I can text him. I can email uh-huh. him. I can even phone call him, but I know he's a lunch. He's a lunch guy. If you want to talk to him, you're going to have lunch. Uh, okay. So he's face to face. You know, he, he, he isn't going to do any other. He's not going to do deals any other way. I personally don't send me emails. Email I, my email inbox is horrible. <laughs> I have note to I self. Have <laughs> rules and I, you know, you send me an email, you're going to go to the bottom of my list because you're not on my team, and I just get too much. Right? I, I went to too many conferences and let people scan my badges. I guess that's what's going on in my life. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a texter, but you can't text me unless you know me. But I'm kind of a LinkedIn guy. So you know, if you if you want to get my attention, you get them. You get me on LinkedIn. But that's me. So other people, they're all phone people. They're texters, they're phone, they're email, they're only get through an introduction. So the question is, there's a communication preference for every one of your buyers. And so the issue is when we thought, when we think about cadence, what I teach my students is the purpose of cadence is not to annoy the customer because most people use cadence to annoy you. Mm -hmm. It's actually to probe to find out what's your preference. I'm going to ping you on your phone. I'm going to try and call you on your phone. Do you pick up your phone? If I dial you 10 times, you never pick up your phone. You know what? I don't think they pick up their phone if they don't know the number. So then I email you three or four times, five times, six times. Do you ever respond? Well, hey, if you never open it, guess what? That's not your method either. If you go to LinkedIn. So the, the issue really becomes, I like to describe it, Jeff, as I have a message here. And if you knew me, you would receive my message. And so my job is to say, will you receive the message? Well, the problem is you're going to ignore me in the areas I don't have preference. Yeah. So if you reach out to me in the areas I don't take messages, I'm either going to be ignore you or I'm going to be annoyed by you. But if you choose my preferred space. So, so the early cadence opportunity that I teach in, in my digital prospecting classes what we don't know when we first reach out to somebody is, are they, are they a picker-upper? Are they a texter? Are mm-hmm. they social? Are they, um, hey, I only do face-to-face. I only talk to people that introduce me. What are the rules in their head? What is their preferred communication style? So, yeah, absolutely. This is a key thing. Boy, if we could ever develop a piece of tech that would tell us this, um, that would be huge. It's interesting because when you think about companies like the sales engagement, I bet they have the data on this. Um, it's interesting they haven't monetized it by by selling, hey, this person always picks up the phone. <laughs> A little bit of connect and sell when you think about the dialing. I think connect and sell knows who picks up the phone. So I like this approach because it's actually a little bit of a mind shift in that as sellers, we're not blasting all these channels. I think this is for a lot of folks, right? You're like, I'm just going to put it on all channels all the time and just pray for them to pick up. Instead, you're thinking, I'm going to put this information in multiple channels to see which one is their preference. Like that's the kind of overall kind of thought process of like, what is the preferred channel? Once I figure that out, then I can double down on that and, and really try to connect with them if they're interested. Well, of see, if we come back, so we come back to the very first question, right? Which is quota attainment misses. Yeah, And so what we know is that by doing these non-strategic cadences and sequences, we're driving down efficacy because as every new company that brings on a sales loft 
or brings on an outreach and brings that up to speed. We're now systematizing outbound noise. Once again, think about that at aggregate level. Think about it as an ecosystem level. Everybody who puts in that machine all of a sudden now has strategic deployment of outbound yeah. with cadence sequencing. And so when you take that in aggregate, you go, oh my gosh, the buyer is being inundated. So what I like to say is if you know activity drives results, we give that to Jason Jordan from years ago, right? He did that work that said, hey, what, are we, can, what can we manage? Mm-hmm. Well, we can manage activities. So I blame and give credit to Jason. We're, we're friends. Um, that he's the reason we drive activities. So congratulations, Jason. The world is now driving activities. So, and we, have, we, have, we now have technology where a manager can verify through the sales engagement platforms, indeed, the activities are being done. Yep. So we now are there. Congratulations. We're there. Now, the problem is activities do drive results. But then there, there's uh, Rob Jepson and x came out with a beautiful acronym called RASR. Okay. So RASR is you take results, R. but the activity needs two things to be effective. Number one, it needs skill and it needs resource. Okay. If you add skills and resources to the activity, it actually creates a different result. And so I love that, right? The second Rob shared that with me, I think it was four or five years ago, he he called me up and said, hey, let me run something by you. I'm going to do this to my my advisory board and my board. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to change the way I teach. I'm going to to immediately put this in the classroom in January. And he he briefed me in December. And ever since we've operated off the Razor, we say to our students, listen, if you want Results. By the way, in the Razor model, if I believe, if I understand correctly, the A is little A. It's if you want outsized results, you can't. Uh-huh. It's not big A. It's big R, big S, little A. You have to put resources, which include training, coaching, yep. and then you have to develop those. Those resources need to be focused on enhancing skill. So the moment that when the moment hits and the, the one thing that we've added at UTD over the last couple of years, and this is where I talk about in the book is what I'd like to call modern motions. So the skills we can develop are either skills that are classic. So these cadences okay. right now are based off of what I call a classic sales machine. And, and you okay. just defined it, right? Hey, this cadence that doesn't think about the buyer at all. Well, that's, that's like old school. Modern motion says, hey, I can use something like an, an XI cube or a crystal nose and get a personality profile on you, which then tells me there's a certain way you like to be talked to. So I can chameleon a little bit. Then when I probe into the different spaces, I'm going to do it in a modern motion where I'm, I'm probing to learn not trying to deliver the message until I've identified that I've, I've resonated with you at your preferred communication. And I'm using the right tense and, and style based off your, your personality profile. Right. Now, these are modern motions, right? I'm using the resource 
and I'm developing a modern skill to do an activity. And when I do this, Jeff, what we found at UTD, that the performance differential is anywhere from three to five X. Wow. Same activity, three to five X. It's a big deal. So, you know, what you made me think of. So when we talk about traditional cell and kind of like this approach to cadence, I think there's also a different skill set that's needed for the modern B2B seller. And so what are you seeing, especially with, you know, you teaching students and students coming out of the program, what are the traits, skill sets, capabilities that a modern B2B seller has to have that might look different than what it was five, 10 years ago? Well, let's be honest about this. Bots work. That's why they're deployed. Mm-hmm. Right. And bot-like behavior works. That's why it de- it's deployed. So let's, let's leave that there and say that does work or it wouldn't be happening. I'm an economist, right? Okay. If we see things yep. in the world that we don't like, we have to be honest about the fact that they pay. So that yeah. it, it still pays to do bad selling. Uh, thus, we still have bad selling. So the first thing is you, you have to, you know, back to Jason, you have to do activity. No, <laughs> you have to do stuff. Let's get the skill. If you want to be a highly effective modern seller, you know, I, I watched six presentations for my digital prospecting class yesterday. And okay. it was interesting to watch the differing students give us their performance numbers. And every single one of the groups that said the following achieved higher objectives. And what they said was we tried a strategy with our funnel. And then we adapted based off the feedback that we got from the marketplace. And when we adapted, we got better. And so, so yeah, I would say agility and coachability are two of the attributes that we need in a modern seller. Because when you look at the aggregate noise that we're creating in the marketplace in the outbound space, you have to be adapting and adjusting to the natural movement of the buyer is twofold. And in the book, I describe two different cycles that the buyer is reacting to. The first cycle the buyer is reacting to is technology, right? Mm -hmm. Each wave of technological evolution, the buyer is adjusting They're adopting a piece of technology, and then they're adapting their behavior based off their adaptation. For example, this is a great example. I used to give this in keynotes, and then one day my wife was in the keynote, and I went, well, this will be fun. Because it's about my wife. (laughs) I think I feel like I know where this is going. (laughs) So she, I got her first iPhone, you know, and and this was years ago. and, And she looked at me, and she goes, I don't know why you got me this. I don't know that why I'd ever use this. So she adopted, but she hadn't adapted yet. And then it was like six to eight months later, you know, we're heading to bed and, and, and she looks over at me and she says, I just want you to know something. As she's looking at her iPhone, right? She's going, if mm-hmm. you ever die, I think I'll be okay. But if this thing dies, I need a new one. Oh, so she not only adapted, adapted. but adopted. She adapted. <laughs> She had adapted to make the iPhone a critical element of her being. Whereas at first she said, I have adopted it, but I don't even know why I have it. And so technology changes the way we, we live. It changes our expectations. So we have this 
We have technology innovation occurring all over the place for the consumer and the buyer. And so the buyer is constantly changing based off technological innovation. Then the, the other piece of the puzzle is, so is the seller. The seller is being inundated with technology to attack and or outreach, depending on how you want to look at it. I think a lot of sellers attack the buyer with noise and poor messaging. I like so, the way you put it. So the buyer is actually developing defensive mechanisms. So they're actually adapting. I call it behavioral shift. Mm-hmm. They're behaviorally shifting a defensive mechanism to literally identify, oh my gosh, you're a seller, you're noise, I'm going to adapt. I've got defensive mechanisms I've created, so I'm going to ignore you. So you have a double shift going on. And if you have a double shift, by the way, they're not adapting to you. They're adapting to the ecosystem uh-huh. of all of the, the 13x people that were hired who are now magnified by 10 to 100x. Yep. That's what they're adapting to. They're not adapting to you. They're adapting to the ecosystem of outbound. And so they are in a constant state of adjustment. It's why best practice is such a fun thing. Best practice doesn't exist anymore. Because, Jeff, when you define a best practice, what's it going to be? It's going to be scaled. Mm-hmm. So it's time to move on to something different. The best practice. <laughs> yes. And it's it, going it, to fail soon. Yeah. It's the truth, though. It, it's so it true. Is. Like the minute it becomes a best practice, it's like, and we got to now do something different. Unless it's relevant, by the way. Unless it's skill based, right? A best practice that is skill based, okay. not motion based. I not like that. I like that. The differentiation there. So, Skill-based best practice is one thing, but emotion-based practice is the one that becomes yeah. useless pretty much immediately. You know, it, when, and we look at this, you go to gymnastics, right? Simone Biles is, is the GOAT, right? Yep. In her sport, right? Now, at the end of the day, doesn't she still do the same activity as they did 100 years ago? She jumps on a floor. <laughs> she jumps on a horse. She flings around on, on the bars, yep. right? All the gymnastics. It's the same activity, Jeff. It's been around for 100 years. What differentiates Simone Biles? It's the motion she makes in the air. Okay. It's the motions. She is doing it in a way that requires modern skills, and she's leading the field in the way she moves. That skill that, that brings about new motion that is the reason she's an Olympic athlete. I like this idea and this concept of adapting versus adopting or adopting versus adapting. What it made me think about though, as a sales leader and you're introducing new technology, there is, and you tell me if you feel differently, there is a, there's two parts to implementing a technology into a seller's workflow. I think immediately all sellers have to adopt the technology because they're being forced to. But to your point, I would assume that the adaption of that is really where you start to get different types of results. And so help me understand a little bit about like how sales leaders should be thinking about that because what, what you made me think immediately is like, so we deploy, I don't know, a, a new sales enablement system, whatever. Okay, everybody is, has adapted it because they have to, it's in their workflow. If you don't use it, you get fired. But mm-hmm. how do I then shift to people actually, ad- I'm sorry, they have to adopt it. 
how do I actually then get to the point where people are adapting it and changing their behaviors to accommodate this new capability? So I, th- I think the first, the first thing is when we think about diffusion, so you have to look at a diffusion. You can force the adoption, but you can't force adaptation. That's what I was adaptation thinking. Adaptation is behavioral. And so a lot of times what you'll find is, is true adaptation is actually occurring more through organic, either infection, diffusion, contagion. For example, let's, let's take Sales Navigator as an example. Okay. So one of the values in Sales Navigator, from my perspective, is the relevancy it can, can give the buyer prior to the motion that they're going to make. So you could say, oh, okay, Jeff is working here and has wrote a book. So that's enough for me. I'm going to reach out to Jeff and, and I'm going to use those two points of personalization. Okay, that'll be interesting because it's very shallow. Now, once again, you have to look at the cost versus benefit, right? If I'm, if I'm doing low end transactional selling, what I'm saying doesn't work. You just go for numbers. I'm sorry. You just go for numbers when it's transactional. It's a volume. Let's assume, let's assume this is a legitimate B2B. You're, you're an account that I'm trying to get into and this is going to take some effort, right? So this is a significant sale and I'm trying to get your attention. And I believe that I've identified you as, as a key person. So, how about I move out to insights on your company? Is your company growing? Is it shrinking? How many job openings do you have? What's the growth path of your company? By the way, what, what are you guys doing in the news? By the way, Jeff has a podcast. Maybe I should listen to the podcast. Maybe I should get a feel for who Jeff is. Now, when I reach out to Jeff, maybe I'm going to do it differently, right? I'm going to change my motion Uh because I've looked at things and said, wait a minute, if Jeff has a podcast, maybe the best way to get to Jeff is actually to respond to one of his recent posts about his podcast, listen to it, and actually give an intelligent comment to him, and then put the connection request in. And then, right, I mean, it, yeah. see how you change the motion, right? Because I'm saying, huh, I, I'm going to learn. Or let's say I go in and I find on the insights that your company used to be growing at 50%, but you've slowed down to zero growth in headcount or you're reducing headcount. Okay. Now, how you use this, do you see now we've got a skill problem? Yeah. Because now I've used, I've adapted to using the data, but now I need to be able to take that data and develop a potential outbound that is relevant to you. Now, it depends on who you are. Let's say you're the VP of sales and you just, you, you were ramping up, ramping up, and now you slowed way down and you have no openings and everything's steady. Mm-hmm. And so if we use the script, Right. If we use the whatever, you know, I'm going to pick and choose from the the plays. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm ill-informed. And I realize that Jeff um, has a podcast and he works at such and such a company. And I then I pick. Now, if I did that additional work because I've adapted to understanding context, I go, huh, I don't think I should be talking about his company growing because it isn't. He's probably in a weird spot where he's not quite sure where the future is headed. So now maybe I, I'm going to reach out to Jeff and say, hey, I noticed you guys were really ramping up and now you've kind of stayed steady. I'm wondering where things are at. 
And maybe we could have a conversation around helping you at this moment in time. Maybe we should have a chat. Mm -hmm. By the way, so Jeff, almost nobody does this, right? So when you get a message like this, you first off, you know, it's not a bot. Second off, now come back to let's bring these plays together a little bit. What if they started by commenting legitimately, listened to one of your podcasts, had a legitimate comment or two, and then they said, hey, by the way, Jeff, I was looking at, you know, your company growth over in Insights, and, you know, I just think you're in an interesting moment in time. I'd love to chat with you because I think there's some things we've figured out that, that maybe could be relevant versus whatever my play was right. and hitting you with 27 cadence points that regurgitate yeah. this. Blah, 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 that blah, may or blah, may not be relevant. Highly personalized, very relevant. And maybe you were just brought in to the company a month ago. Well, why were you brought in? You were brought in because of the slowdown. Hey, I know you're in the first 30 days. Interesting job. I'm looking at the data too. Listen, you may not be at a moment you can even talk to me. Or versus you've been there for four years. Hey, dude, I... This has got to be an interesting moment in time, right? So these yeah. things are relevancy, right? I'm, I'm looking at you. And, and you know what's amazing, Jeff, is I can actually look at you and say, you know what? My solution is not right for your moment. So I'm actually not even going to reach out to you. I'm going to put you in a nurturing space. And I'm going to say, hey, Jeff, great to meet you. Man, you're in a really interesting place. I sell stuff. But if you want to talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. But I think I'm going to wait and see where you, you guys, it looks like you guys are going through a lot of stuff right now. Or I don't yeah. even talk to you. I literally harness you and say, hey, I'm going to meet Jeff because one day Jeff's going to move into a different mode where he's growing his org again. And then when that moment hits, I'm going to be there for Jeff because and I'm already going to have a relationship with Jeff because I've been working that. Yeah, but to your point earlier, that takes a level of skill, takes a level of maturity. It also takes a level of being allowed to have a longer term view. And, you know, all of that is sales leadership, right? Because, you know, we have those conversations of like, what are you closing this quarter? And it depends on the sales leader, right? But most don't want to hear, I have these, you know, this, this batch that I'm nurturing that are might close in Q4 of next year. Great. I don't care about those. What are you doing this quarter? Well, yeah, but okay. So let, you're right. There's a level of material, level of professionalism. Listen, I'm assuming that when you're in sales, that you're in a profession, right? You're not here trying to, you know, do a one, you know, one off and, and moving on in the world. And if you're going to play the long game and I play the long game in my, mm-hmm. I'm working on certain accounts that have taken me two to three years, but they're whales, yeah. right? When I landed, when I landed IBM as a partner, it took two and a half years to get him in. So you know it. Now here's where we're running into trouble, though, Jeff. Okay. Is it people are not staying in their position more than a year that's, or two years? And so that's why you have the short-term thinking. Well, not only that, it's the managers that are moving that fast. So the that's manager, the manager is is myopic. They're thinking in short time frames. And so this is causing problems in the profession. To be a true sales leader, you have to be thinking longer than, hey, I'm going to do this for the next three quarters, four quarters, five quarters, and then I'm going to get my, I'm going to move from 
um, a manager to the, the, the VP or CSO. And then I'm going to move from the CSO to the CRO. Um, mm-hmm. This is a little bit of a millennial challenge, right? The millennials want to keep moving. They, you know, millennials probably hate me for saying that, but hey, it's, <laughs> it, it, you know, the, the great resignation and the movement within sales is a little bit millennialized. And so the challenges were moving too fast. The customer is the collateral damage, right? So yeah, yeah you, you, you do have to be able to think about buyers and buyers space. One of the things I teach my students all the time is the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do as an individual contributor is spend an inordinate amount of time with a buyer that cannot buy in the time frame you need. So, yeah, you've got to have your pipeline full of people who are going to close this quarter. But, you know, how do you get there? Is it you were working a year ago on people who you knew were going to be in this quarter? Yeah. Now, you know, in the early days, it, it just sucks, right? You got to build the pipeline. You got to understand that, hey, some people are just, they're not the ICP because of timing, because of timing and scenarios and, and buying committees. Right. Sometimes you just have to wait people out. I have a company right now. I've been at this for 10 years. I won't say the company name, so I won't get myself <laughs> in trouble. The current Please leader, don't. the current leader, is, it told me, he said, I've never paid to be on a campus at a university and I never will. Well, we kind of we kind of lean on financial support to give scholarships to the kids, pay for some of the really cool stuff we do, like deploying a sales tech stack. I have staff that helps us run a live sales organization. Without them, we can't do that. Right. And so we look for financial support from companies. So this guy wants to take from but not support the, the, the talent pool and the, and, the, and the garden that's being created. And now this is something I know, Jeff, because I've worked with this company for 10 years. They rotate their leadership every 18 months. Okay. So I've been watching. <laughs> 18 months ago, he took the job. And then like, the TikTok, next six And you know what? Every other time when the hot when, when the rotation hits, I get a phone call from the senior recruiter saying, We used to have a relationship. Why don't we have one now? And I get a deal. So yep. I'm just waiting. So he's in my, there's no way I'm gonna close that guy. It's not worth my effort. I have so many other people in my pipeline I need to go close that yeah. I'm going to, I know him. I, I, I have him in the back of my head. I know it's 18 months. Yeah. By the way, TikTok, by the way, another, <laughs> another Fortune 5 told me, hey, this was in 2019. They said by 2022, we may be at a point where that our center of excellence will take university students. Oh, guess what it is? 2022. We're late 2022. We're going to move into 2023. It's time to talk. Yep. You know, so remember when, remember when you mentioned there? that thing about 2022? Well, that time has come. Let's have a conversation. Yeah, my, my students have been like, that account is so complex and confusing. And I'm like, yes, and it's 2022 and it's late in the game. Um, you know, it's been weird since we've had the pandemic. Yeah. And I know all the people in the corporate headquarters. And I know the people on the ground, things weren't lining up. But you know what? They've rolled out their new center of excellence. They achieved, they either achieved or did not achieve their objective. I think it's time to play ball. Let's go play ball now. I love it. 
Well, I want to make sure we give you some time to to talk yeah. about the book. So we had a conversation again, like we said, in San Francisco, and I got a little bit of a preview of the book. And of course, I couldn't say anything because the book wasn't out yet. Uh, but now we can actually talk about it. So uh, of course, it's called The Sales Innovation Paradox. I love what you've done in this book. And I love, you know, obviously just being in this space. It's a conversation that we need to have. So why don't you tell folks kind of like the motivation to write the book and then kind of some of the the, the key takeaways uh, to see if they, it would be a fit for them to read. And then we'll kind of dive into a couple of the topics. So the real motivation was for years, I, once again, I'm a technologist, I'm an economist. Mm-hmm. And so when you bring those two things together, there's something called the experience curve. And the experience curve says when you're in a technology space, when you double production, you usually are more efficient. Yeah, there's some efficiency gain. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I asked my friends, I said, well, you know, hey, we're deploying all this technology in the sales. Why aren't we seeing the experience curve? Because when you're playing with tech, you usually get this efficiency gain. Well, most of my, my, my college friends are behavioralist trained. So like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about. And second off, that's, I mean, you, okay, you're using mathematics and sales. And I said, yeah, but this is a real serious issue. And so at first, my, my thrust was I was starting to do keynotes around technology and the ability to really have a modern day Iron Man suit, mm-hmm. you know, that you could really deploy technology to 10x and really do some amazing things with automation and augmentation of a salesperson. And then I started realizing, well, wait a minute, as companies start doing this, they actually get worse, not better. And then they, they keep staying worse, not better. But then there were these breakouts. So I would see these companies who would contact me and say, so I kid you not, Jeff, this happens to this day. I get a call from a company that says, we're ramping up. We need 100 to 300 salespeople and we need them tomorrow. And I'm like, okay. Now, when I was first early in my job, I was like, oh, yay, this is a client. They got to pay me. Woo, you know? Yeah. And then I get these other companies that say, hey, I only need two people, maybe three people next year. And they were hitting the same revenue targets as the people who were staffing up with 100, 300. And so very early on, I, I started going, wait a minute, what are they doing differently? And why isn't everybody doing this? And so I started early on just getting these people would call me up and I noticed there was this bifurcation within the, the sales space of people who were harnessing technology in phenomenal ways. And then these other people who were deploying technology and really screwing it up. And so it really got to a point where I said, you know, I need to, I need to say, how can we describe why? Why is this happening? Yeah. And that's really the book. The book is saying the paradox is we now have abilities with technology to truly automate most redundant functions. Mm-hmm. We really are at a point, Jeff, I really do believe we're here. I can't say two names because I have devices in my office that will respond. So the only thing I don't have in my <laughs> office is Alexa. Uh, but she's allowed in your office. She's not allowed in mine. Um, so we're really at the point. We're not technologically at the point where this is possible. We haven't tied the APIs together. Okay. I think Microsoft is close, by the way, and I need to go follow up with them in my quarterly or semi-annual review with them. But we could literally say Alexa. My name is, my company is the Institute for, Profe- for Sales Knowledge and Innovation. Could you please create a list of the potential ideal customer profile for me? Go ahead and develop a nurturing campaign 
develop a dialing campaign and go ahead and set my appointments for those who need my appointment, send them to my website to purchase if they need to, and go ahead and generate that for me. And I will just take my meetings now. Thank you. We're there. Wow. The capacity to tile that together. Yeah. Is there. Now it isn't, it isn't available yet, but I, I, I think we'll be there within six months to a year. So if that's where we're at, we have a lot of change that's about ready to hit the field, but we have a lot of people who don't want that change. Yeah. And they don't, they're afraid of that change. They're take the hill, classic people. So the modern is here. The headcount reduction is coming. And so the ability for individual sales contributors is to say, hey, how do I harness the modern technology in a way that only the human is going to be able to do? And there's still going to be a role for humans because at the end of the day, making a decision is tough in a complex environment. And that's going to take some really brilliant people who are well-trained. So you bring up something that's really interesting because, you know, more and more people talk about sales as a human-to-human interaction or human-to-human connection. And so it seems to me, right, we have all this, which is ironic, we have all this technology that, you know, sellers need to learn, but the skills that need to be coached to are the human skills of connecting. Because if we start to automate a lot of the process, those sellers that become the most valuable and that will rise to the top are the ones that are able to over-index on the human connection, empathy, understanding, being able to have a conversation, those things become more important than I can work within a sales enablement platform or I, I can send out you know more emails than my counterparts. Like the skills that are prioritized seem have shifted to more of those people skills, which it seems ironic because everybody says people skills is what you need to be in sales. I want to make an adjustment because you're the you're the sales and marketing alignment guy, right? So yes. let's you you made the comment that selling is a human to human, and I would agree, but buying is not unless it needs to be. Ooh, tell me more. Tell me what you mean. So this is where uh, there's some work I need to do before I retire, and I want to I, I like to call it the fundamental theorem of sales. Is when do we really need sales? When when do we really need marketing? And if a buyer knows exactly what they need, they buy it. Right. They don't need you. They actually don't want a human interaction unless they do. So the buyer is going to dictate whether I'm willing to have that human interaction. Now, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of uh, personality types in sales that will force the communication on the buyer. But the Mm -hmm. question is, is that creating a negative experience, a friction-based experience? Um, So the buyer in this world of information can make the decision, will make the decision. And so the only question is, at what point does the buyer need face-to-face interaction to enhance their experience and their need? You know, they find value in that interaction. So. There's the way in which a salesperson can force themselves into a buying situation. And that's a certain personality type, certain charismatic, certain type A personality that we think is who we need in sales. And I'm not going to argue, listen, if they can force themselves into the buying scenario and generate revenue, they're always going to have a job. But the question is, what is that doing to the brand? 
Mm. There's a brand taking the impact there. Now, if we really think about modern moments and, and the amount of information that we have available for the buyer, if the buyer wants a frictionless experience, we should just let them buy. It's when that moment hits that they say, I need an intervention and I need some help from a human and I want that human. Now, if you bring in that same personality that's actually there like, hey, dude, I'm going to get into this space and I'm going to make this happen. Actually, that experience is jarring to the buyer. And this is where we're getting research from Gartner that says, hey, I, I think it's up to 70% of buyers are saying, I really don't want a sales person yeah. in the experience. I want a rep-free experience. Yes. And yet that same research, Jeff, turns around and says, and yet when I have a human need, I want you to be good. I want you to be relevant. I need you to be great. And I don't get it. Yeah. So this is, this is actually saying that we're, most of the people we have in sales are the wrong people for the moment that we have in this. We're hiring and training the wrong skills for the moments that we're having. So actually, when I do reach out to you, I really need you to be very intelligent about where I'm at, who I am, what I'm doing. I don't need discovery unless I do. Yeah. I don't need you to use challenger on me unless I do. Right. And so I'm really situationally, there's some work that left Dr. Left Bonnie has been doing at Florida State. And he, he developed something called the Agile Cell System. But basically, the gist is one of his clients came up to him and said, Hey, we deployed Challenger and it isn't working. Can you come in and figure out why? And after a lot of research, he said, Well, that's because only 20% of your situations require a Challenger approach. Well, there's four other situations you run into in which completely different methods are required for those moments. And so you need to train your people for the moments, not based off a single methodology. And this is like heresy to the sales field. I mean, <laughs> wait a minute, I got to train four methodologies, five methodologies. And the answer is that's not yes and no. If we're going to stick in the methodology paradigm, then the answer is yes. I have to train in all those methodologies. But let's come back to the Razor concept. What do I really need to do? No, I need to identify the key skills that meet those moments. And then I need to have the person understand what resources do I need to bring to bear and what skill do I have to need to have for the moment the buyer's in so that I'm ready for that activity, whether that be an outreach, a meeting, a closing meeting, a, a customer success meeting. Yeah. I'm going to have to have different skills and we may need to break away from this concept of methodologies and training methods. Boy, I'm really you know, getting into heresy here for the training industry, but the field moving forward, I like to say a lot that the sales and marketing alignment challenge is really that we're using outdated theories from the industrial revolution to try to manage behaviorally shifting yes. people. So, and I, and I love the fact you brought up the industrial revolution because I talk about the same thing in my book uh, and that a lot of what we're doing is just outdated. But I, I really like, you know, you talk about the fact that as a sales leader, it's about helping your sellers identify more accurately 
what the buyer needs in the moment they connect with you. And then having the skill set to be able to react and meet them where they are. And then thirdly, uh, I don't think you said exactly like this, but this is what came to my mind, being able to pull together the resources necessary to meet the seller where they are and give them, I'm sorry, the buyer where they are and give them what they need versus just being married to a methodology, which may or may not be appropriate for that buyer when they connect with you. Because to your point, they're connecting with you and saying like, look, we've, we've seen everything. We've done our research. You are our top two options. We just want to better understand which is going to be best for us. Coming to that and doing a full discovery may not be appropriate. A shortened version of that or a bridge version of that may be more appropriate versus asking the question. So I showed you, say, hey, it's between product A and B. We've done all the research. We talked about you, da, 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 da. Well, tell me what keeps you up at night. Like that doesn't seem like an appropriate response to what I just shared with you. And you have to have the skill set to be able to understand that. So we've been on an experiment now for three years at UTD. I've been looking at the, the Gartner's Jobs to be Done framework and the sense-making framework. Okay. And there isn't really any training built around this. So um, I've been on a journey to iterative design. It's an iterative design process to say, how can I teach new sellers how to think in a jobs to be done buyer-centric framework? And mm-hmm. I will admit that it's, it's been an interesting journey. It's been very iterative. <laughs> um, and, and in the beginning, to be honest with you, I would just look at the box. I remember uh, three years ago, I would, I'd be like, okay, today we're going to talk about search. And I would be like, oh, crap. What I, why did I give a whole section on this? Because there were times I was like, I don't even know where to go. Um, but now yeah. I, it, it's helped me a lot because now I, 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 I live and breathe the jobs to be done framework to say my job when I run into a prospect, when I'm, when I'm visiting with a client that's in my pipeline, yep. is absolutely to say, where are we at in the jobs to be done framework? Which stage, which box, which job are we trying to get done? Are we trying to identify the problem today? Are we trying to search for the solution today? Are we actually trying to build the requirements that we need based off the search we've done, or are we at vendor selection? Where are we yeah. at? Which, which, which job are we trying to get done today? And so I've tried to train my students on this, that relevancy really, and, and this comes back to taking what left Dr. Left Bonnie was talking about and moving it to another, using a framework that Gartner has created to say, well, if we need to be situationally aware, one of the methods that we could use or one of the frameworks so once again, getting away from a methodology and moving to a framework that then it says, one of the skills I need to have is when I meet you, Jeff, and I, you're my prospect, you're, my, you're deep in my pipeline, or you're my customer, and this is a customer success call, or maybe an upsell call, mm-hmm. then I need to say, where is Jeff in the jobs to be done framework? Is he at vendor selection where he's already said, well, hey, I need a, a competing quote. I got three other quotes. Well, hey, you're clearly, you personally are clearly in vendor selection. But you know what? You haven't chosen why. So now we go back out and move out to the team and say, okay, who else is on the team? And where are they in the jobs to be done framework? And so this is a modern way of training people that is 
methodology agnostic. Now, what's amazing is you take any methodology and you can lay it on top of the framework. Right. So if you're in problem ID or you're in vendor selection, and if you're in vendor selection and I should be in there, we're at challenger. We're using challenger methodology right now. Or if I'm in problem ID and you've got the wrong problem, I'm in challenger methodology. Yeah. That's a challenger moment. You've got to use challenger concepts. But if I'm in pure discovery mode, I'm still trying to ID, then I may be in spin or challenger. It depends, right? You got to decide which one is is the right one there. So I could be in the value selling component if you're in the, right? If you're in the search, if we're in search, it's a, it's really kind of to map out the landscape for the customer. Yeah. So, I mean, these are things that when I start understanding what happens at buyer, then I can be more relevant when I'm a seller. And these kind of things really require us to reframe the way we go to market. We've been doing this now, Jeff, for, for three years. And the deployment of these students to the field is ridiculously potent. Um, wow. The performance differentials, the way in which we are on the initial deployment pre-COVID, we had a 2x on close, and then we had a 5x on actual revenue generation from okay. semester to semester. Now, we just got back to that those kind of numbers this semester. Um, COVID put us all over the place. So, you know, it's a muddy, yeah. it's been a muddy experiment. So, yeah, I just think we have to think differently. You know, when we talk about that quota attainment challenge, when we do the same thing everybody else does and deploy best practices around activities and and classic motion, really, are we shocked that we're only at 40%? That's, I mean, gee, why isn't it worse? And it will be. It will be worse because everybody's, I love the CNBC right now, the elongated sales cycles. We have elongated sales cycles right now. Well, you know what that means is we have irrelevance and we don't understand the jobs to be done. Uh-huh. We're not relevant and there's not, we're, we're not, we're not, we're not, we suck at selling. Yeah. We suck at selling. That's why we have elongated sales cycles right now. It's complicated. It's changing. It's shifting. We got to transform the way we, we, we look at things. But I wanted to, as we close out, uh, I know a lot of the, the work you're doing with the Institute was born out of the book. So for those leaders, revenue leaders could be sales marketing that are listening, how do they know or how would they identify that they potentially want to connect with you from the, with the Institute and or read the book? Just kind of what's that look like? And then also let us know uh, where we can find you if we want to stalk you and learn more about you uh, online. LinkedIn is my, my, my key platform. So I, I don't know that there are more than one Howard Dover. My parents did a good job naming me. Um, <laughs> Mine, not so much. Jeff Davis is everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. So there are very few Dovers in the world and there are even less Howard. So it, it's a good combination. Really, the Institute, we're looking at two things. We, we want to identify disruptors at the individual team and company level. Okay. But, you know, we want to identify and document and disseminate um, really true innovation that's occurring in the space, whether that's based off knowledge deployment or, or innovation. Um, innovation can be both in the way we go to market or in technology. And then we really want to identify those companies that are harnessing it because so few are yeah. and, and tell those stories. And then, of course, if you know, we can actually go in and take a look at a diagnostic of the company and say, you know, what, what's the difference between 
what you're doing and those companies? What's the difference between what we're doing at UTD and what you're doing as your company? Because there's really no excuse not to move into the modern space. It's identifying where the back three chapters of the book, if you're a leader, you may just want to jump to the last three chapters because it talks about why you're going to struggle to make these things happen. Yeah. And so really, you know, doing some diagnostics around what are you up against? What kind of inertia are you dealing with internally? Um, what, what kind of process have you put in place that will really make harnessing the modern capacity problematic or frictionful? And then how do you get it frictionless? And um, so there's some challenges there. There's a reason it's not widely adopted. It's it's even tougher to maintain. And at some point we'll hit a tipping point, Jeff. But we're not there yet. We're not even close to it. So it's it's really challenging to first deploy and then second off maintain. And and so I've been looking at this for a good half a decade on who's been able to do it, how they've been able to do it, and very few have been able to sustain it. So these are. These are some legitimate challenges for leaders to say, listen, the payoff is huge. The payoff is huge in performance. The payoff is huge in just human capital development and human, just the ability to pay your people well and have a world-class sales organization. But to say it's simple would be not being fair. So yeah, yeah it, this, is a, this is a bit of a calling to me to help people in the field. Listen. I was a poor kid. You know, I went out and sold and it allowed me to do stuff. I got to go to Disneyland as a kid, not because my mom and dad took me there. I got to yeah, go to Disneyland as a kid because I worked door to door to get there. Yeah. I'm kind of serious about this hopes and dreams thing. We're really destroying the lives of a lot of individual contributors who are doing exactly what we asked them to do. And they're less, they have less success because they're doing exactly what we told them to do so we need to we need to change we need to change the model we need to we need to upgrade listen i don't have all the answers a lot of great minds out there you know you're at the sales enablement soiree that listen there's work to be done in the field to move the field to the modern space we live and we got to get away from the classic motions well, definitely keep the Rev Engine podcast in mind as you kind of garner these stories. And I definitely want to use this platform to share those, share those innovations, because yeah. uh, I know sales leaders want this content. They want to better understand this. And I think it's important uh, to share it. But uh, I know you're a busy guy uh, and we could, we, could, we could continue to talk for hours, but I know folks are, folks are probably tuning out at this point. It's like, I got other stuff to do. Uh, but again, I encourage those uh, that are interested to get the book, The Sales Innovation Paradox, written by Dr. Howard Dover. Make sure you pick it up. And uh, Dr. Dover, thank you for your time today. Great. Thanks, Chef. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Rev Engine Podcast. I hope today's episode provided you with some actionable insights that will help you begin the process of transforming your organization to a high-performing revenue engine. If you found today's episode valuable, we ask that you support the show's growth in three ways. First, share the episode with your friends and colleagues. Second, Follow me on social media at Meet Jeff Davis on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, give us feedback on who you'd like to see on the show next. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time where we continue the conversation on how to build a high-performing revenue engine.